Disclaimer. The contents of this episode are intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In no way is this episode meant to disrespect anyone spoken about within it. Its contents consist of information made available to the public, compiled in one place. Welcome back to Crime Brulee. Once again, I'm your host, Kirsten Dorman, and I can't tell you how good that feels to say after all this time. You know how it goes. Life happened, the pandemic happened, and continues to happen. The American election happened, crazy semester burnout happened, blah, blah, blah. The important thing, in my book at least, is that we're back and hungrier than ever for some true crime content. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for listening, as well as to thank everyone in my personal life and even a few people who just really enjoy listening to me talk for encouraging me to pick this back up. Crime Brulee is something I really love working on, and to know that there are people out there who support me in doing that just means the world. Today, we're taking a look at another case that we know well enough to go over, but certainly isn't over yet. This is a case that I've been following closer to back when it started to gain a lot of attention, which was in early February or so of this year. Today we're going to be talking about the disappearance and tragic death of 11-year-old Gannon Stauk. I want to say in advance that this might not be an episode you'll want to listen to if you're particularly sensitive to crimes against children. I won't beat around the bush. This case brought out a lot of feelings in me and at times was honestly difficult to research. It isn't always easy to talk about the things that put a pit in your stomach the way this case did for me, but I still think it's important to. Gannon was a bright, awesome little boy who loved doing just regular kid things like playing video games. His favorite was Sonic the Hedgehog. It shines through in the way that those who knew him talk about him and even just when you see the way he smiles in pictures. Gannon was a special little boy. But don't just take that from me. Here's what his mom, Landon Hyatt, had to say about him on Facebook back in January of 2016. She wrote, I've got to brag on this little man. A little more than seven years ago, God blessed me with this miracle that was born only weighing one pound and six ounces. The doctor told me that if he survived, he would only have about a 10% chance of survival, and if he does, he will most likely have many disabilities. His first part of his first school year was a disaster. The school suggested alternative school for my little man. With seeking a little help, Gannon made huge changes not too long after being suggested for alternative school. Gannon was the star student of the week. He progressed so well. This school year, Gannon progressed so much more. He also made student of the week and was nominated for the math B and he won second place for his grade. My 10% chance of survival this week was placed in gifted and talented. God has truly blessed me. I love those moments when I feel so overwhelmed with realization of what I have been blessed with. G-Man, Mommy loves you and you will always be my hero and I will always be your biggest fan. 
It's important to remember that the stories we talk about here and in the greater true crime community don't belong to us. They belong to real people, many of whom are still out there. While what happened to Gannon is tragic, what we can do now is examine his story and maybe learn something from it. We can keep an eye on the institutions responsible for delivering justice for Gannon, and we can hold them accountable for doing that. That being said, the main tool we're going to use to navigate this case today is an affidavit written by police back in February. Then we're going to build on that by going over what's come out since. It's important to note that a lot of what is written in the affidavit was written before Gannon's remains were found, as well as that it's not a perfect timeline of events. YouTuber Stephanie Harlow has been a great resource when it comes to getting some insight on this case. In general, Stephanie's videos are very well researched and, fun fact, actually served as part of the inspiration for Crime Brulee's creation. I can't speak highly enough of how respectfully she covers cases and the work she puts in to help expand the way that we view the people involved, not just as victims, but as people. She has a great set of videos going over the affidavit and its contents, and her thoughts on the narrative constructed around the timeline of what happened are definitely worth giving a watch. You can find her channel just by searching her name, which again is Stephanie Harlow. Now let's dig in, beginning with the family. Eugene Al Stauk, an operations officer with the 100th Missile Brigade who is stationed at Shriver Air Force Base and is Gannon's father, has another child, Layla, who's eight, with Landon Hyatt, his former wife. From what I can tell, he goes by Al, so that's what we'll be calling him for the rest of the episode. In 2015, Al was granted full custody of the kids after his and Landon's divorce. He also married Letitia Stauk, whose daughter Harley is 17 and who goes by T, and moved from South Carolina to Colorado Springs. Landon stayed in South Carolina. On the weekend of January 25th, Al was out of town, training for the National Guard. According to the affidavit for T's arrest, Al was deployed from the 25th until the 28th, leaving via commercial airline on the 26th and returning the same way. T stayed home with the kids during this time, at one point posing with Layla and Gannon for a photo while they hiked in Garden of the Gods. The next day, Monday the 27th, T claimed that Gannon didn't feel well because of stomach issues due to a medication that made him anxious, according to her, so she kept him home from school. She called her place of work to tell them she wouldn't be in that day because her stepfather had been hit by a car and killed. However, as far as I can find, this never happened. The Stauk family's neighbor, Roderick Drayton, said he spotted movement and footage from a surveillance camera attached to his house around 10 that morning. The footage, which you can find pretty easily by just looking on the internet, shows what appears to be T backing up a pickup truck, which we know from the affidavit is the vehicle Al would normally drive, into the driveway. Shortly afterward, Gannon comes out of the house and gets into the back seat. Drayton then says that the truck reappears on the footage again at 2.19 that afternoon. 
This part of the video is discussed a lot. Some say that you can see Ganon's feet come down and touch the ground on one side of the truck not facing the camera, indicating that he got out and went inside. However, others have said that they just don't see it. The video quality isn't great, but attempts to zoom in on the area where Ganon's feet would be spotted as he gets out or slow the footage down to see any little movement there, in my opinion, just have not produced anything convincing. When we see Ganon get into the truck, he does so on the side of the vehicle facing the camera. One insight by Stephanie Harlow that I want to bring up here is that kids are creatures of habit in some ways. As a mother, Stephanie has said that she always finds that her son, who's around Ganon's age, always gets in and out on the same side of the car. Now, even though I'm not a mom, this is something that I can attest to as someone with younger family members and from what I remember about mine and my little brother's habits as kids. When someone else sat on my side, quote unquote, of the car, it would kind of throw me off and sometimes even annoy me a little bit as funny as that is looking back. In my experience at least, that's just kind of how kids are. Regardless, let's walk back a little bit in the timeline to about 1.43 p.m. that same day. A Google search was made on Gannon's phone for, quote, can my parent, singular, find my phone, period, if it's, meaning I-T-S, no apostrophe, off, period. The details of this search are notable because, for example, throughout the investigation, it's been found that T has a tendency to accidentally hit the period key when typing instead of the space. In the affidavit, there is also a note that other searches with a period between words instead of a space were made in addition to this one, but what those particular searches were about was not included. Later between 3.15 and 4 o'clock, T claimed that Gannon asked to go over to a friend's house. According to reporting done by Susie Ziegler for KRDO, the sheriff's office confirmed at the time that Gannon was last seen at his home wearing a blue hoodie, blue jeans, and tennis shoes. When T called 911 and the county's non-emergency line, the affidavit states that she said Gannon was supposed to be home about an hour before she had called and that she couldn't locate him at his friend's house. She also claimed she didn't know and didn't ask which friend's house he was going to, but did say that he left on foot. Also around 3.15, Layla is believed to have arrived home and immediately was sent outside by T to play. Harley, at about 4.52, came and picked Layla up, but I haven't found a clear answer on why or where they were meant to be going, if anything specific. Later on, T would claim that she sent Harley to look for Gannon at a park. Regardless, it's been found that around this time, T also texted Harley to pick up trash bags, baking soda, and carpet cleaner. At approximately 6.45 that evening, Gannon was reported missing when he didn't return home. According to Al, they had a quote-unquote streetlights kind of rule, where when it started getting dark out, Gannon was expected to return home if he was still out playing. It's reported that police arrived at the house close to 10 o'clock. Katie Blaze's reporting for ABC Denver tells us that that same night, search parties formed, kicking off the community effort to find Gannon. In one Facebook group dedicated to searching for Gannon, one thread, which was screenshotted, organized, and compiled by the website True Crime Society, included a few users talking what seems to be at least a day later about Gannon's activity. 
One user said he normally would play outside across the street with the other's kids and his sister. Another user who claimed to live next door to the Stauk family described Gannon as a nice little boy who would come over when it snowed to ask to shovel their driveway or the sidewalks. Another user who also claimed to live next door in that same thread mentioned that his mom, likely meaning T, usually would tell them when something happened to the kids. They said that they were retired and at home all day, but hadn't heard from her at all. Within 27 hours of Gannon's disappearance, after investigators asked T for Gannon's toothbrush, the affidavit says, quote, Letitia believed she was a suspect in his disappearance without any prior prompting from law enforcement or notification of such. She texted one of the detectives the following, What do you want from me? Because I have nothing. One of your very own leaked to me what you guys were doing. I did nothing and or am being set up. I'm not really even sure other that being told that by another blue with El Paso. I was told I couldn't go home to sleep, and on top of that, men were sent to a home with a minor female, and she was forced to stay there not to even leave for food. Every conversation that said, even at this moment, I can hear inside. What do you want from me? The detective simply replied, Come in to talk to me. I would just like information to find Gannon. Within the first few days of searching, Here's what we know investigators found in the home. Some of what appeared to be blood in the garage and in the trunk of Letitia's vehicle. What has been called a saucer-sized pool of blood is also found allegedly in Gannon's bedroom. Although T at this point in time can't explain the blood in the bedroom, she does offer an explanation for the blood in the garage and in her trunk. Gannon, according to T, had cut his foot on a woodworking tool that weekend and sat on the edge of the vehicle's trunk while she bandaged it for him. At one point, it was also suggested that Gannon had hurt himself on their hike in the Garden of the Gods, but this was never confirmed and has since not been brought up much, if at all. The affidavit for her arrest notes that Overall, T displayed some pretty odd behavior, including displaying knowledge that, as it reads, corroborates physical evidence that would be near impossible to have without her being intimately involved with the murder. It also reads, quote, Letitia lied to investigators on multiple occasions, has unexplained and abnormal behavior such as obtaining a rental car, disconnecting her cell phone from the cellular network for an extended period of time, the false reporting of an alleged rape, abnormal patterns of travel, a continuously evolving story with material changes in facts and circumstances, and that she has since left the state of Colorado at the time of this affidavit being written. That's a pretty heavy list, and there's even more that has happened since then. Let's start with what we have in the affidavit. In the affidavit, it's stated that T obtained a white Kia Rio on the morning of January 28th from a rental service in Colorado Springs. Normally, T drove a black Volkswagen Tiguan. She picked Al up from the airport in the rental car, though, and the Tiguan actually remained in the airport's short-term parking lot until later that same day. According to the affidavit, the timing of the rental of the Kia is suspicious, and combined with forensic evidence later obtained from the Tiguan and discussed below tends to place additional importance on why Letitia felt compelled to rent a vehicle that morning. 
Investigators located no evidence that the Tiguan was not mechanically functioning or noted any reason why it could not have physically been driven. T, though, justified renting the Kia to Al by saying she didn't want to put miles on the Tiguan, which was a lease. She only ended up putting 71 miles on the Kia in the time that she rented it, though. Al also never saw the Tiguan during the time that the rental car was in use, and T would not give up its real location to him. She apparently told him that it was parked near an elementary school. Investigators were able to apply for and receive a warrant for the Kia before someone else rented it. A swab taken from a stain in the trunk was confirmed to be blood, a DNA analysis of which determined that it was a mix of two different people's blood. At least one of the contributors to the sample was male, but the profile didn't match Gannon's DNA. The sample also hasn't been matched to any known DNA profiles associated with the case. According to the affidavit though, this doesn't prove that Gannon's blood was altogether absent from the trunk. Quote, because the Kia Rio is a rental car, it has likely been utilized by a large number of people, and the blood in the trunk may or may not be related to the investigation. In another frustrating turn, investigators weren't able to gather any GPS data or location history from the rental car, so it's hard to determine anywhere else T went in it aside from taking Al home from the airport. However, they knew where she went after January 29th when she rented a 2020 Nissan Altima after her Tiguan was seized by investigators. A warrant was granted to install a GPS tracker in the Altima, and on January 31st, she went to an area north of Palmer Lake and along Highway 105 and South Perry Park Road. This location is in Douglas County, which is roughly an hour outside of El Paso County, according to Google Maps. This specific location and the fact that it seems so out of T's way is important to note because it's mentioned that she really has no reason to be going here. There's no family or friends that we know of that live near this location, or really any other reason that we know of for her to be traveling to this specific location. In the affidavit, it's stated that investigators believed that T disposed of Gannon's remains at nighttime and was likely nervous about the location she chose, and may not have even remembered exactly where she dumped Gannon's remains. It's also stated that not only did they believe that at the time she was returning to this location because other evidence suggests that she had been there before, but that she was going back to ensure that Gannon's remains were adequately covered to prevent detection and to see if any law enforcement may have been in the area. Analysis of data recovered from a computer chip removed from the Tiguan shows that it was in the same area in Douglas County the night of the 28th. It's further noted that no reason has been found to believe that T wasn't the person driving the Tiguan at the time. Now let's talk a little bit about T's cell phone activity. Basically, investigators were able to find the location of a cell phone based on the cell tower antenna locations and orientation. This kind of thing is talked about a lot in missing persons cases because whenever you use a cell phone, it quote unquote pings off of a cell phone tower. The locations we get from looking at this data are approximate and not exact, and the way the data is reported will vary slightly from carrier to carrier, but it's still a very helpful process for determining someone's movement when there's not any CCTV or another way of finding where they were. What the affidavit tells us in this context is that analysis identified unusual activity for Letitia, including potentially disconnecting her cell phone from the cellular network for several hours. 
The period of time where she either disconnected from the network or turned her phone off was on the 28th, which is when it's alleged that she disposed of Gannon's body. It's speculated that she would have done this in order to keep the authorities, or anyone else, from knowing where she was. As well as this, the affidavit reads that T, quote, lied to her employer, her husband, her friends, her daughter, and the children's babysitter. And the writer says straight out that they won't include every message or lie, which leads me to believe that there might have just been so many lies to go through that it would have really been tedious to put everything in. One of the conversations that we do get to see is with the children's babysitter, in which T tells the story of Gannon being told to be home by either five or six. It's a little difficult to read which number it was because this is a photocopy of a paper document, but she does also say that he had gone to the doctor for stomach issues that day. And just to clarify, there's no evidence or any indication that Leticia ever took Gannon to a doctor that day. T also made statements to investigators over text that the affidavit says could, quote, be considered exculpatory, meaning they would be favorable to a defendant in a criminal trial. Basically, it looks as if T may be trying to cover her tracks. Another great insight from Stephanie Harlow that I'd like to include here. A lot of what T has had to say about how things happened, including sometimes odd-seeming details, tends to tie into discoveries made in later stages of the investigation. Although it's important to remember that Letitia has not been convicted of any crime related to this case and is therefore innocent until proven guilty, in my opinion, statements like this coming from her do seem odd, to say the least. For example, her statement about Gannon cutting his foot in the garage and sitting on the trunk of the vehicle while she bandaged it could have been intended to justify the presence of blood in or on the trunk or in the garage. Another one of those statements comes into play with what we're going to talk a little bit about now, the carpet in the house. In a message to someone the affidavit only identifies as an investigator, T says, When we both came back inside from the smoke, there was blood on both of us. I didn't know what to do. I was scared I would get fussed out about it and I didn't know if he should go to the doctor. I kept trying to add the candle thing, but Albert kept saying it was small and minor. I was sacred, probably meaning she was scared. The basement was smoky and when I threw the covers on everything, we both had blood. To understand what's being talked about here, we have to talk a little bit about T's activity on social media. Before we do that, I'd like to quickly address something. Aside from other posts related to what we're about to discuss and Gannon's disappearance, T also took to posting some very negative things about Landon, who you'll remember is Gannon's biological mother. More or less, she had a lot to say about Landon being an unfit or uncaring mother, alleged drug abuse, and other related things. To go after the mother of a missing child the way that T did, in my opinion and in the opinion of many others, was wholly inappropriate and honestly a horrible thing to do. Whether or not any of what T wrote about Landon was true is irrelevant here. Aside from acknowledging the fact that those unnecessary and disparaging statements were made, I will not give any more time to them on this podcast than I already have. Now, let's circle back and talk about the candle incident. It's difficult to tell exactly when certain things were posted because Facebook posts don't show dates until they age a certain amount. 
What we do know is that T posted the following some amount of time after Gannon had gone missing and the investigation had already begun. Credit for posting the screenshot that I'm about to read from goes to YouTube user Plunder. Please also note that what you're about to hear is just part of a much longer post. This excerpt of it is just the most relevant to the part of the case that we're examining. On Sunday, we went for a hike and Gannon was there crying with me because I was crying. It was the day Kobe passed, but he had no idea who he was, just that I was upset. I had every intention of covering up the fire that he started and protecting his feelings from what punished he thought he was going to get. That was our plan the next day, to rectify the situation so that his little heart could stop crying. I have the video because somehow my phone was recording and you can hear how sorry he was. I have the pictures after we return how, so please don't believe what these people are speculating. At the end of the excerpt here, she's likely referring to some speculation and at least one Facebook group about Ganon potentially having gone missing during or right after their hike in the Garden of the Gods. It's also possible that she's referring to speculation about pictures of Ganon walking down the street somewhere in the neighborhood or her own involvement. Regardless, she goes on to talk about Albert being hurt and people saying horrible things about her, claiming that she made this post to quote, clear up some of the accusations slash lies. Attached to this post, among other things, is the video T claimed her phone somehow took. How her phone managed to start recording video without her doing anything or realizing at any point during this interaction is beyond me. Honestly, it seems a lot like she may have begun recording on purpose for whatever reason, but that is just a personal opinion. Before I play this video's audio, I want to take this moment to warn you that some listeners may find the upcoming content upsetting. It can be very intense to listen to, and if you feel as though you'd rather skip through it, the clip lasts roughly 50 seconds. I will be providing a brief summary of the major details of this interaction and what is most pertinent to our discussion of the case afterward. I'm now going to be playing the audio from the video Letitia posted to Facebook. And I promise this is the last time I'm going to ask you. I'm just freaked out, okay? Are you sure you didn't do it on purpose? He did it. Okay, we promise. He promised. Pinky promise. Thank you. Okay, all right, so listen. Listen. We're, all right, um, we're going to have to sell stuff to fix it, okay? So okay. we figure out what we're going to sell. We can sell the sofa. We can sell whatever, because we got to get it fixed, so lady. Don't be mad at us and kick us out of the house, okay? You got it? For those of you who skipped ahead, you can rejoin us at this point. To catch you up to speed, T repeatedly questions Gannon about knocking a candle over on the carpet and mentions that she quote-unquote just freaked out. He can be heard crying while she talks about them needing to find something in the home to sell so that they can replace the carpet and won't be kicked out. Why T would be making comments to Gannon about them potentially being kicked out of the house is unclear to us as the public. There are also some texts that have surfaced which are allegedly from T to Al that more or less 
say that Gannon knocked over a candle, but that he's okay, just scared. Due to her claims that the carpet had been burned when the candle was knocked over, it's possible that this was the alleged source of smoke tea was referring to in her text to the investigator. Many sources have alleged that by the next day, some of the home's carpet had been replaced. There's been a lot of speculation online about what T's reason behind posting this could have been. From what she said in her post, it seems as if she might have thought it made her look like a good parent. However, the majority of the reaction online that I've seen at least has been anything but positive. Users on different platforms who have seen the video have called her behavior despicable, vile, and even abusive in nature. If nothing else, including the video in our view of the case may help us better understand the relationship between T and Ganon as we try to make sense of what happened. Let's shift gears and look at some of T's Google search history from January 25th to the 28th when Gannon disappeared. Investigators seized her phone on the 29th. It's important to note that they would not have been able to recover any searches that T may have deleted before then. As the affidavit notes, this is not to imply that if she were to have deleted any searches, that it would have been done with nefarious intent. The searches that we're about to go over are what the person writing the affidavit deemed to be of interest, so keep that in mind also. On the 25th, her searches tended to revolve around parenting advice, unhappiness, the phrase husband's ex-wife, and finding a rich guy who wants me to take care of his kids for pay. A few from that day read, find real military singles, and one day some people will wish they treated you differently. The following day, only three searches are listed. She asks whether it's crappy for parents not to get their children gifts and about parents putting their nails before their kids. On the 27th, she searched for things related to burnt carpet and whether a humidifier would help the effects of smoke. On the 27th, she searched for things related to burnt carpet and whether a humidifier would help the effects of smoke. She also searched for things related to suede sofa repair and a child in Colorado staying home from school. Her last search that day was El Paso Sheriff's office number. Then on the 28th, her first search set the tone, process for a runaway child. She also searched, can Nintendo find my Switch? Ganon, who loved video games, had a Nintendo Switch that at the time of this recording still has not been found. Remember how we talked about some of the knowledge T displayed corroborating physical evidence she shouldn't have been able to know about at the beginning of the episode? Let's go over a quick list before we close out. One last time, let's read directly from the affidavit. Letitia has made statements to explain blood on the walls in Gannon's bedroom, blood on the rear bumper of the Tiguan, and blood in the garage of the Stauk residence. At the time, details of the blood evidence in this case hadn't been released to the media or her, and had been closely held throughout the investigation. Furthermore, Letitia has continued to provide alibis for her physical locations not previously disclosed to investigators. Her statements continue to evolve in a dramatic way and are all remarkably different from the original report to EPSO. For now, that's all I have for you. Next episode, we'll be going over more of the ways T's story has evolved and continue trying to better understand as well as bring a picture of what happened into clearer focus. If you're still hungry for more from Crime Brulee, you can find us on Instagram at Crime Brulee Podcast. Thank you once again for joining me. I've been your host, Kirsten Dorman, and this has been Crime Brulee. You'll be hearing from me again soon with another fresh episode. When it's served on the podcasting platform of your choice, just be sure to bring your appetite.